0: Chapters of the Forefathers, more commonly known as the Ethics of Our Forefathers. And the reason why this was chosen was because the summer months are classically the period of time where the Saturday afternoon is long. And therefore, time was set aside for this study of ethics. And this is a practice that really begins right after the Passover holiday and goes through the entire summer there are 6 chapters to pirkei avos pirkei avos the ethics of our fathers is considered part of our mishnah literature it's considered part of our talmudic literature and what happens is that every week we learn an entire chapter and then we go back a second third and fourth cycle to go through the ethics of our fathers obviously we only have in this summer session 6 weeks so what we will do is we will try to cover as much ground in the chapter or chapters as as it as it unfolds and god willing in future summers we will will pick up where we left we will finish this summer now the ethics of our fathers begins as a book of ethics with a very peculiar introduction the book, book of ethics begins by telling us Moshe Kibbel Torah Sinai, that Moses received the Torah accepted the Torah at Sinai good morning I mean we as Jews know this is a basic concept of Jewish belief the divinity of Torah which encompasses both the written and the oral law and why we should be reminded of the divinity of torah at the beginning of a book of ethics seems to be somewhat out of place and needs interpretation <clears throat> in addition to this in addition to this one has to wonder why we talk about moses accepting the torah not from god but at sinai i mean the principal the principal the principal factor at sinai wasn't sinai the principal factor at Sinai was God giving us the Torah, the way of life. So it would be more logical for it to read, Moshe Kibbal Torah, Me'akadosh baruchu that Moses received the Torah from God. He didn't receive it from the mountain. So if one looks in the commentaries, one sees, Kelomer Lemi Shebole Sinai, the person that came to Sinai, so we have to figure it out. It would be much more straightforward to simply say, Moses received the Torah from God. But that's not what it says. It says, Moses received the Torah at Sinai. And obviously, if it says it in that way, it means to communicate to us an idea that would otherwise not be reflected. So, the, the first thing that we really have to do, and this is a very appropriate introduction to, to the entire work, The Ethics of Our Fathers, is to understand the need for ethics. Now, if one looks in the entire work of, of The Ethics of Our Fathers, one will come to realize that there is a tremendous amount of simple, practical advice of how one leads his life. Things like judging a person favorably, smiling at a person, being of pleasant temperament, of trying to be happy with your lot learning from everybody for every everyone has something to teach, a lot of practical advice. And certainly there were many books that were written that were books of ethics. There were philosophers that wrote books on how to lead life and be happy in the pursuit of happiness. Those of you that recall the series that we did before the summer was some kind of a book like that. So one has to wonder why it is that the Torah feels that it has to author or that God has to author a book on ethics. Seemingly, you get people together. You decide on what works and what doesn't work, what makes people happy, what gains friends, what doesn't, and finished. Why is it that you need the authorship of God to compose a practical guide on how to lead a happy life and get along with other people. Now, some of us would answer this question quite cynically and say, well, many of the other books don't work. And it's not far from true. But the question is still a question. Do we need the divinity of Torah to teach us a, a way of living with all of those aspects of practical advice, or can't we really, if we're just honest with ourselves, figure it out for ourselves? So this is, this is an interesting question, and the answer to this question really lies in appreciating where we're coming from in general when we talk about living ethically from a Jewish perspective. There can be two ways of looking at all of the advice of the Book of Ethics. One way of looking at it would be, this is what works. So if you are concerned for social well-being and social welfare, these are guidelines and advice. People, in order to have a happy life, have to learn how to live with themselves and with each other. So here, I'll give you the advice on how you'll be able to live with yourself and with everybody else you won't step on my toes, I won't step on your toes, and we'll all live happily ever after. That's one way of looking at it. This is referred to as social ethics. However, the ethic of Torah is not coming solely from a place of social concern. The ethic of Torah is coming from a place that the human being needs to develop certain characteristics and certain sensitivities towards himself and towards others That without those sensitivities towards himself and to others, his whole relationship with God is impossible. So when we talk about the goal of a book of ethics, the goal can be very pragmatic. It can be just to get along in life and be successful in life. But it can, but from a Jewish standpoint, a book of ethics takes on a whole different consideration. How does man behave to be able to be in contact with his dignity and the dignity of the other individual, thereby making this world a place in which God feels comfortable to relate to man? How does this world become a place that can be inspired by spiritual value and spiritual goal? so some people would think well, get into the spiritual stuff get into ritual do things roll in the snow I don't know what meditate the book of ethics teaches us that the same way that God makes contact with us at Sinai through all of the different laws of Torah the same contact is impossible to make with God without a book of ethics so in other words while we know that many of the other parts of Torah we would never have been able to write ourselves, and we needed God's contact with man to author it, but we could think to ourselves that ethics we could write ourselves. So therefore the book of ethics starts off and says, no, Moshe Kibbal Torah Sinai that for the God contact with man is the intention and the ultimate goal of the book of ethics beyond the the, the the purpose of the social benefit. And in order to accomplish and to relive Moshe, Kibel, Tare, Sinai that Moses received our, the God-man contact, one must learn the disciplines and the wisdom of this book. So, what comes out of this is a very interesting thing. Were the book of ethics only a book that's that's coming from a place of being socially pragmatic we wouldn't have needed God to author it but being that the ultimate goal of this entire book of ethics is the evolution of the spiritual personality of man that comes out by his dignity for himself and for his fellow Jew God is the one that can teach us what is the dignity due man himself and due his fellow man and hence, the authorship of the Book of Ethics. Now, there was a great Hasidic master, the Svas Emes, who comes from the Gera dynasty, Ger dynasty, who who presents this idea in a very interesting way. He points to a portion in the Torah that we didn't learn so long ago in the in the weekly reading, where Moses turns to God... <coughs> No, this is actually in Deuteronomy, I'm, I'm sorry. It's at the end of the five books of Moses, where God, where Moses turns to God and says, listen, my days on earth are, are limited, they're numbered. God, who understands all of the souls of the Jewish people, appoint a new leader, so that when I go, there should be an easy transition to, to, of leadership and that leader should be the Ro'eh he should be the shepherd he should be the guide that will, will bring the Jewish people into the land of Israel so the great Hasidic master the Svasemis based on many verses throughout the scripture proves that the word Ro'eh the, our shepherd our leader is really a reference to God so here it is here it is that, that Moses is standing before God and asking that the Jewish people should have their next roeh, their next shepherd, their next leader, while roeh really is a reference to God himself leading the Jewish people. So the Swasemas says that there is really no contradiction here because in essence, God is the leader of the Jewish people. He is the one that watches us, protects us, and leads us. However, there has to be a unique individual in humankind that leads us, who prepares us to be led by God, to be directed by God. He creates a climate and an atmosphere within the people that makes us worthy of God being in our midst to guide us through our existence in this world. So, God is definitely the Roah; God is the one that leads. But we as a people need the teacher, the mentor, the leader, the guide that makes us worthy of receiving God as this ultimate Roa. And this is what Moses prays for. The Svazemes continues and he explains that this prayer that Moses prayed to God was not a one-time prayer. That when I leave... In history, the next leader should already be in place. But it was Moses' prayer that for all time the Jews should be provided with the kind of leadership that would allow God to be in our midst and to truly guide us. So it wasn't a prayer just for one particular time, but it was for all generations. So while Moses' prayer was immediately answered by Joshua becoming the leader after Moses, but that prayer really exists for all times, that there is some kind of a leadership or guide that we will always have that will enable us to be meritorious of God being our ultimate shepherd. The Tzfasemis, the great Hasidic master, continues and he says, And what do you think? And where do you think that prayer was answered? That prayer was answered in the book of Ethics. In other words, Moses' prayer, Yifkar Hashem alakeha that God who understands all the souls should give leadership to the Jewish people after my death, that was put into, it was inculcated into all of the chapters of Ethics. So that a person that would study and then follow the ethics of this book would then become worthy of drawing the leadership of God as our shepherd back into our midst. So what do we see from the teaching of the Svasemis? What we see from the teaching of the Svasemis is that the book of ethics goes far beyond being a book of of practical advice of how to get along in life. But it goes one step beyond. It goes to the step of creating, by the discipline that all of these pieces of advice give us, a way that we merit to always have Moses' prayer answered that God will lead us and God will direct us. With this, we can understand very well, very well why the ethics of our fathers opens up with the words Moshe Kibel Torah that Moses received the Torah from Sinai and the question that we asked was why doesn't it say Moses accepted the Torah from God why from Sinai so those of you that are familiar a little bit with the, our medrashic literature know that Sinai was chosen as the mountain upon which Torah would be given for a very important reason the mountain of sinai was given the was selected as the mountain upon which Torah would be given because it was of all the mountains that that were logical to choose the lowest in height and our madrashic literature teaches us that ultimately the god man contact cannot be accomplished without man having a measure of humility as opposed to arrogance. Now this is a very interesting idea because many of us think that the path of spirituality is in all kinds of mixtures, mystical teachings, inspirations, meditating on letters, and who knows what else. But our sages teach us that the critical component for man becoming a vessel to receive in an untainted fashion The guidance of God is through humility. And therefore God chose the lowest of all mountains upon which to give the Torah to say that the accomplishment of the God-man contact is more contingent than on anything else is contingent upon man's humility. This gives us a little bit of the flavor of the basis of what the ethics of our fathers is all about. One could say that humility is a nice virtue because arrogant people smell. Arrogant people are difficult to get along with. Arrogant people can never learn. So it's practical to encourage and to foster the ideas of humility. But by the ethics of our fathers, starting off by saying Moshe Kibel Torah MiSinai, we are taught that the ethic of humility is not just a practical piece of advice so that we can get along in life because our noses aren't in the clouds but that they can face another individual. But it goes beyond that. That's one healthy reason. But it really goes beyond that also because a person that doesn't have humility can't relate to the God-man contact experience. So this really shapes out for us a very interesting attitude towards the Jewish ethic Now, there will be things that we'll learn as we go along that will look odd, peculiar, antiquated, possibly, and unfair, possibly. But if we will keep this particular dimension of the ethic involved, that we're not only looking for the practical benefit, but that we're also looking to create an environment within which the contact with God becomes natural natural, and, and viable then those pieces of advice make a lot more sense when we come to them I will point them out and we will be able to develop the concept based upon these first words now <clears throat> let's see what the what we are being taught here? Moshe Kibbutz Torah Missinai. Moses received the Torah from Sinai. In other words, the God contact was made possible through the teachings of humility. Umasrullah Yeshua and he gave it over to Yeshua, who was a dedicated disciple, not to his children. For spirituality is not an inheritance; it is something that we gain from the generations before us through dedication. The yeshua is Canaan and Joshua then gave it over to the most reliable people, the elders of the time. And then the elders gave it over to the prophets. The prophets gave it over to the high court that was established when we returned from the Babylonian exile. Now, what is the significance of this reference to the intricate chain of the transmission of Torah from generation to generation. What's the significance? Now, I'm not going to get into a whole stint this evening about the divinity of Torah and how we know that the Torah, after it was divinely given, was authentically transmitted from one generation to the next. However, we have a very precise and accurate history that records the transmission and the the question that usually comes up in most people's mind is in transmission have the weakness of the telephone game that's the classical question that always comes up if you have 20 people lined up and one starts with a story and gives it to the second person the second to the whispers it into the ear of the third and so on and so forth chances are that even before you get to the 20th person the story is different from where it started at the beginning of the line And this is a question that is usually posed about how we can rely on the authenticity of the transmission. Doesn't it have the fallacy, certainly over time and generations, of the telephone game? And one of the answers, one of the answers that is given to this is that there's one big mistake that's made. Because in the telephone game, there was number one No prerequisites or requirements to be a listener of the story or a transmitter of the story. Number two, when you listen to the story, you weren't told that if you made any change in how the story was told to you, that your head would be handed to you. So what difference does it make? It's a colorful story. A story, I'll add another pitch. I'll add another little piece on or a little piece. off. Why not make it flavorable? However, when it comes to the transmission of the Misara, we are taught that both of those factors are not true. Number one, the people that were chosen for the transmission of of the Misara, of the tradition, from one generation to the other, were people that were exemplary, not only in, in scholarship, but in all moral and ethical values. They were the only ones that could be trusted to be able to transmit from the generation closed to the generation ahead without the subjectivity that would have distorted the authenticity of Torah. So it's a phenomenal thing. And these were people that their lives were dedicated to this. They did nothing else in their lives except study and transmit This this wasn't a telephone game played when you have to burn time. This was their dedication of their life. They were supported by the nation to do this and to guarantee that the tradition would go over from one generation to the next. A big difference from the telephone game. But why is this significant to us? This is significant to us in one important way. The same way That we cannot rely on an authentic transmission of God's will without individuals whose character was morally and ethically impeccable. We can't rely upon it. So too, we cannot develop an ethic of our own unless we're willing to say that we're coming from a place that is ethically and morally impeccable. I don't think that anybody carries around the, the, the notion in their mind and in their head that they are not, to a certain degree, subjective in certain areas of ethics and morals and that things change as needs change and so on and so forth. So therefore, Perkeavis begins and Perkeavis says that the qualities of ethics and the purity of ethics is critical. It's critical in the God-human contact and it is critical for the authentic transmission between God and man. And therefore, for man to know with a certainty that he's always in contact with God and not just with what he personally wants, he has to study ethics. Now, let's see the first things that he, t- we are taught in ethics the high court was famous for saying three pieces of advice they taught us three pieces of advice now we are going to go through ethics and we are going to learn many things and there were people that were known to, con- to say things that th- those were their sayings this is my teaching Now, this doesn't mean that their entire scholarship was contained within these few words of advice. Obviously, they knew much, they learned much, but their personalities and what they gave off really resonated with particular messages. So this the, the high court that transmitted the Torah from earlier generations resonated with three basic messages... What were the messages? The first one was Be patient and deliberate in judgment. Now, the literal definition of this first piece of advice is that if you find yourself in the position of being a judge, of sitting on a court and having to judge people, don't quickly judge people on the basis of five cases that you had before this that seemed to be remarkably similar. Each case can have nuances that make it different. So therefore, don't run into a judgment and into a decision because if you run with haste into a decision, it's very conceivable that you miss some points and you ultimately distort the will of God in your judgment and distortions usually are preserved and become larger with time. So the first piece of advice and clearly, it speaks of the of the tension of the responsibility of, of authentic transmission, Be deliberate in judgment. However, the great Hasidic master, the Sfas teaches us that having Misunim Bedin seems, on at first glance, to be reserved for people that get up there and wear robes. So the great Hasidic master says, says no, it's not true. Having Misunim Bedin. Be deliberate in judgment is a piece of his vice that relates to every single individual in two ways, the Svassama says. In life, some of us are more predisposed and some of us are less predisposed. But we, are all, we all have some form of a disposition by which we automatically have to put everybody into a department and into a category. You belong here and you belong here and you're this and you're that and judging everybody. So, the ethics of our fathers teaches us, be careful. Having misun and badin. Man is tempted to make very quick and hasty judgments and not really comprehending the hidden greatness that lies behind any individual. Be deliberate in your judgments. Because when you're not deliberate in your judgments, you can very often sell other people short and deny the knowledge to yourself and then to them the dignity that they truly possess. The Svasemis continues, and the Svasemis says, but Havimasun Bedin means something else as well. Besides judgment of others, it also means the judgment of oneself. Hevi bedin be slow and deliberate in self-evaluation and introspection. Now, what does this mean? Very often, we do one of two things in life. I've met both kinds. Some of us look at ourselves for about 15 seconds per year and in the 15 seconds decide that we're in the top 9 or 10th percentile of the country in terms of decency. And with that, we dismiss any onus of responsibility to grow. Finished. That's it. So we're very quick to say that all in all everything is fine and dandy and now let's proceed with life as usual. a bedin. Don't be so quick to judge yourself favorably. On the other hand, the opposite is also true. Havim bedin. some people are predisposed to being very harsh on themselves. And the minute that they see a conduct that seems to reflect a horrible negativity, they come down hard on themselves and they say, I'm nothing more than a dirtbag. And there's nothing much that I can really hope myself to ever become in life. Again, the ethic teaches us having Isunam B'din. Be very deliberate in, in your judgment of yourself. Because if you're not deliberate in the judgment, you can be denying A lot of the essential reality of what you're all about. And when you deny it, you can never be it. Because if you're not, if you don't judge yourself and see those things, you can never act, be those things. That's the first piece of advice. The second piece of advice is, Vahamidu Salmidim Harbay. And establish for yourself many disciples. Now what does this mean? It also seems to be very specific disciples. I'm, I myself am a student. Well, I'm going to go out and start ha- ha- making disciples. <clears throat> so, what Hamida Salmidim Harbe really means is that a person should allow himself to learn from many people. This is a simple definition. Don't cut yourself off and say, no, I'm only going to learn. No, excuse me. Wrong. Establish for yourself a situation in which you can impart the knowledge and the wisdom that you've received from life to others. Let me explain what this means. I was confusing it with something else. I'm a little bit out of practice. Let let me explain this a little bit. Very often we think that the function of teaching is like I know it all, you know, or I know this particular area well, you don't, or you need the credits for it, and therefore you come and you study this, try to pass your exams and finish. The reality is, is that part of the learning process brings forth a level of wisdom, a level of understanding that the teacher himself never had until he had the opportunity to teach this is something that is very very true within Jewish study I'm not as familiar with the reality of this in secular study but when you're in, in, in an exchange of, of yes of transmitting wisdom and transmitting knowledge the student is coming from a certain place he digests the information in a certain way, poses certain questions, sees it and understands it, and reflects back to you certain components of that very same wisdom that you've just imparted back to him in a way that he didn't understand it before. So, what the advice of Amidu Salmid and Harbe means to us is that in the imparting of knowledge to others... There's a whole different quality that the knowledge takes on. A person can study, study, study all by his lonesome self out of books and wisdoms and everything and never ever have anything to do with anybody else. There will be something deficient in that wisdom, in that learning. Vamidu salmidim harbei means that in order for a person to have an authentic picture of the wisdom And when we're talking about the wisdom of Torah, we're talking about the wisdom of God. One cannot have an authentic picture of it without disciples. Because without disciples, without people with whom you exchange the ideas and then they reflect back and pose questions, the true flavor of what the Torah is all about doesn't emerge. So that would be a second piece of advice. And then the third piece of advice is Vasu and establish for yourself gates for the Torah. Now what does this mean, establish for yourself gates for the Torah? What does this mean? Well, the Torah tells us, the Torah is divided into two, two categories. Things that we are required to do and things that we are required to stay away from. The things that we're required to do are intended to develop our spiritual potentials. The things that we are required to stay away from are those things that if we get involved in them, they hurt our potentials. They take us off the trolley track. They misfocus us. They develop within us appetites that are counterproductive to where we're really supposed to be going in life. And therefore, we're advised, stay away from those things because they're not going to get you where you're supposed to be going. Now, in addition to the idea of staying away from the things that are counterproductive to, to where I'm supposed to be going in life, the Torah instructs us that in order that we don't fall into those negative behaviors, we should actually create guards, guarding fences that prevent us from even coming close to those negative behaviors. For instance, for instance, let's take an innocent one that's not so sensitive first. The Torah tells us that we're one of the things that we're not allowed to do on the Shabbos is, for instance, to write. The gate for not writing is that we're instructed not to move any kind of writing instrument that we would be tempted to write with. So the actual prohibition is just not to write. The syag, the gate, would be not to move any writing instrument because from moving writing instruments you can even inadvertently begin writing. I remember I was once at a program, at a rediscovery program on the West Coast and... They gave us lovely conference rooms and we walked in there Shabbos morning and by each seat at the conference table there was a pad with two lovely sharpened pencils and inadvertently there were a few people that started scratching with their pencils. So, asus yaglatara basically means make those fences. Now, what's the idea here? One has to wonder why the book of ethics begins with teaching us that in the area of prohibitions we should not only stay away from the prohibitions but we should also make safeguards. Now, like, what does that have to do with what's going on over here? This is a book of ethics. How does this have to do with anything? So if you want to cop out, you can say that, well, this whole first thing really doesn't have anything to do with ethics. It just has to do with transmission. A poor answer. The reality is it's like this. The Rabbeinu Yonah, who is a commentary on the ethics of our fathers, teaches us a very interesting thing. He says like this, the person that institutes in his life, fences, in those particular areas where he knows he's weak, is really saying and proclaiming a very beautiful message. Because a person, technically speaking, can say to God like this, God, I know what I'm supposed to do and I know what I'm not supposed to do. Listen, I, when I get up in the morning, I'll try to do my best. You win some, you lose some, and that's it. But the person that says when he gets up in the morning, it's not good enough, the attitude, I'll win some and lose some. But I'm going to try to do my best to make the proportion of wins against losses higher and how will I do that? By instituting certain fences that will keep me even out of the parameter of temptation. That person is saying something very interesting to God. He's saying that he's not just trying to get by, but he's saying that he cares about being successful. When a person makes the statement that he's not just going to try to get by and, and be whatever it will be at the moment when it passes by, but that he says that I recognize that there's a lot to be gained and a lot to be lost, and I want to invest as much as I can to guarantee the results as best I can, what he's reflecting is that the value and the meaning of God in his life is terribly important and precious. It's not just a question of, well, I'll do what I'm... I'm, I'm um, required to do and you know we're all human but the person that says it's not a question of being human or not maybe I'll be excused but I hurt myself in the process I'm not interested in hurting myself now this is a very interesting attitude because our sages teach us that when God sees the attitude that we're not just trying to get by technically but that we truly believe that the will of God will make my life meaningful. And if I fall into something that's not the will of God, I'm bringing a slow devastation into my life, that attitude is held very dearly by God. It's very precious to God. And God's response to man is, how can I not bring myself closer to the person and help the person if he's making such an effort at trying to guarantee that my will is fulfilled. So what is the person actually doing by the gate? More than just creating a fence not to do the wrong thing, he's saying, God, I don't want to lose you. I don't want to even by accident jeopardize the relationship. This is... A theme of what ethics is all about. The whole theme of ethics, as I, as I explained in the introduction, is not only the practical aspect of how to get along in life, but it is to create an atmosphere by which we merit God's presence. It's that God should be able to dwell in our midst. So any advice that will be able to help us bring this God into our midst is part of the Book of Ethics. And that's why this idea of Asus Yag is expressed here. Let's move on to the next. I'll take, I'll take questions shortly. Shimon HaTzadik Chayam Ishiyari Knesset Hagdola After the High Court, the Torah was transmitted primarily through one great person, Shimon HaTzadik. He was a great individual, History teaches us that when Antiochus came back from war after a great battle and Shimonat Tzadik was in the road, he got off his horse and he bowed down to Shimonat Tzadik. And the servants of Antiochus, who was a, uh, uh, Alexander the Great, uh, uh, yeah, Alexander the great they wondered why are you why are you bowing down to this Jew boy? Like, what's with you? So he said, I'll tell you the truth, every night before a successful war by day, the image of this man comes to me in a dream. So he recognized that Shimonat Tzadik was a very great spiritual person and in some way connected to his victories, and therefore he bowed down to him. In any case, Shimon HaTzadik, who was from the remnants of this high court, he said the following thing. This world was created for three things. And we'll explain what this means. The Torah was created for three things. It was created for... The world was created for three things. For man's ability to become familiar with Torah, for his ability to become occupied with, be- with serving God, and for acts of loving kindness, this is for what the world was created. Now, let's be clear about something here. We've learned many times in the past that the ultimate reason for which God cre- that, for which God Created the world was that man should be able to receive of God's goodness in the fullest measure. God wanted to give. And therefore, He created a world and He created man to be able to receive His goodness. So, if I would have been writing the Ethics of Our Fathers, I would have written that the world was created so that we should all have a good time, that we should all be able to receive all of the benefits of God's goodness. Shimon Atzadik seems to say something else. No, 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 no. The world was created so that you should be able to learn and to be able to serve and to do acts of loving kindness. There seems to be a little bit of a contradiction here. Or is it? It's really not a contradiction. Because what Shimon Atzadik is telling us is yes, there's no question that the ultimate reason for which God created the world was that we should become the greatest benefactors of God's good. But how do we become the greatest benefactors of God's good? By being able to relate to everything that God stands for. How can we relate to everything that God stands for? With these three tools. Through Torah and through serving God and through acts of loving kindness, these are the three ways by which we have an open relationship with God and therefore can receive everything that God wants to give us. So, Shimonat Tzadik is not differing. Shimonat Tzadik is saying that the ultimate creation of the world was the fulfillment of man. But the fulfillment of man is made possible through his tight connection to God. That connection made possible through his connection to God's Torah, to acts of loving kindness, and to the service of God. Now, a number of weeks ago, and I was learning this with my children, I explained it in the following way. I explained it in the following way. Firstly, we have to know that when we talk about Torah, we're talking about the learning of Torah and then aspiring to inculcate those ideals that we've learnt into our lives. When we speak about acts of loving kindness, that's very straightforward as well. That means... Acts of loving kindness, helping the helping people that are in pain and in bereavement, helping people go through periods of time that are either really means all of the all of the the rituals and all of the ceremonies that took place when we had a temple, the offerings that we brought, that refer that was the avoda. In fact, the commentaries go so far as to say, I'll prove to you that the world was created and creation is sustained through these services because after God destroyed the the whole world in in the generation of the flood, Noah came out of the Teva and he brought offerings to God and it was then that God promised that he would never destroy the world again. So we see that there's an interesting relationship between these offerings to God, these offerings to God and the ongoing Cre of the world. Now this means precious little to us today. Firstly we don't have offerings. Secondly, even if we did we are baffled by the meaning and the legitimacy of animal sacrifice and thirdly even if we could, Try to create some kind of a rationale for it, to say that the world was created for it, seems to be stretching it far, too far. So, we've had, we have difficulty with it. One problem. However, maybe the place to start in unraveling this mystery is in learning what the substitute for that Avoda is today. The substitute for that avoda today is prayer. This is what we are taught. It's even in our prayers. That prayer functions in the place of avoda. So the world was created for three things, and they are all available to us today. Torah, prayer, and acts of loving kindness. Now, when I was learning this with my children, an interesting thought came to me. An interesting thought came to me that I'd like to share. We know, we're all familiar with the fact that we're down here on earth referred to very insightfully in our Kabbalistic lit- literature with one simple word lamata down here we also know that there are things that float in the celestial realms spirituality God angels who knows what else referred to Kabbalistically as lama'ala, that which is above. Now, the intention for the total benefit of man was that lama'ala and Lamata that the above and the below, should meet, should come together. That they should have a point of contact. And within Uh, um, a Jew's spiritual growth he has two very interesting ways by which he accomplishes this when a Jew learns Torah what he is actually doing is taking the lofty and bringing it down to earth when a Jew prays to God he is taking everything from this world down here and trying to raise its purpose towards God. They have two very interesting functions. Torah is a function by which we bring that which is lamaala lamata. We take those lofty concepts and we try to comprehend them and then integrate them. A function of that which is beyond these worlds to bring into this world. And prayer, on the other hand, is man's attempt to take himself from that place l-mata, and to re- raise himself and transcend himself and make some contact l-mala. It's very interesting that our sages teach us that successful a successful relationship with God requires both Torah and Tefillah Why? Because we need to bring down and we need to raise up and meet the function of Torah is to bring down and that the symbolism of that is that God came down on the mountain and at the same time spirituality requires a person's ascent to that which is higher as we came to the mountain. This is the function of the Lama'ala Now, let me explain this a little bit better because We know how Torah has many, many lofty concepts and we try to bring it down to understand it, comprehend it, and integrate it. But how does prayer function in bringing that which is down here and bringing it up? And the answer to that is very simple. Because what does a person do in prayer? What a person does in prayer is really not a cerebral function. It is a function by which a person becomes familiar with all of his desires, all of his yearnings, and brings them before God. And realistically, if you really think that God is listening and paying attention, you have to wonder if all of the desires that you're petitioning for are worthy to put on the table or worthy to write into a petition for God to read. If our God would only know what I really want or why I really want it. So prayer functions if we believe in it and we just don't, and we don't pay it just lip service. Prayer really serves to help the person and put the person, so to speak, press him up against the wall to become clear about his yearnings and strivings. And if those yearnings and strivings are the kind that are worthy to present to God for consideration. It's a difficult process. But what the Jew is really doing in that process is he's taking his being in the physical world and his familiarity with the physical world and trying to bring it somewhat closer in concert with what God intended those things to be for. That's a function of taking the lamata of that which is down here and bringing it somewhat closer. Now, Satara so brings down Fila raises up what's Camilla's chassadin where does loving kindness fit into the picture loving kindness is a very interesting is a very interesting phenomena because loving kindness really what loving kindness does is it concretizes within the physical objects of this world that which is above A piece of meat is a piece of meat. But if the piece of meat is used to satiate the hunger of a person that hasn't eaten in days, that piece of meat now takes on a spiritual quality. So, gemilas chasadim, while prayer is the striving to bring that which is below, above, what gemilas Chassadim is actually concretizing the merger of the physical and the spiritual by utilizing the physical things towards higher ends so Shimonat Tzadik says an interesting thing the world was created for three things what does it mean? the world was created so that it should ultimately be able to meet its creator and in it benefit from the encounter from the meeting, from the merger how is that merger accomplished? That merger is accomplished through tara avoda and gemilus chasadim. Now, let me return just for a moment, for the sake of for the sake of of presenting something properly. Let's move back just for a moment to the fact that avoda once didn't mean prayer, but it meant animal sacrifice. It meant offerings. Where does that fit into the whole picture? Why was the world created for those things? So let me share with you an interesting idea which certainly doesn't do the issue of animal sacrifice justice, but it's certainly a point to contemplate. Why was God, so to speak, influenced or inspired by Noah's bringing this sacrifice? In fact, if one is familiar with Talmudic literature, we know That some of the animals that were brought into the Teva were for the intention of continuing the world afterwards. But some of them were specifically brought into the Teva to provide Noah with the possibility of bringing those sacrifices later. Why is it so important? So there's a very interesting, there's a very interesting teaching of the Chinuch who wrote a book on the 613 mitzvot. He lists them, what their basic laws are and the the deeper meanings and he, he tries to get into the meaning of animal sacrifice and he says something that goes like this in Judaism we very often do things that act out very deep philosophical concepts one could argue why do you have to act out philosophical concepts, either you understand them and appreciate them or you don't but why act them out? Well, the human being is very peculiar. Man has a way of learning sometimes some of the loftiest concepts philosophically through acting things out, doing things. And is very often kicked into understanding things by first experiencing them or seeing them. This is referred to as tnuachitsana maureris as apnimius that the outwardly manifestation of a concept usually will make an indelible mark of the concept within the human being. So the Chinuch says like this, he says, here you take an animal and you slaughter the animal. And after you slaughter the animal, the animal is consumed on the altar. He says, there's an idea that's behind this. He says, what we are being taught by this is that once the neshama is out of the animal, once the soul is out of the animal, there is precious little value in the existence of the animal. The words, the exact words, the precise words of the chinuch are Guth bali neshama that a body that has no soul in it isn't worth its existence. Now, the chinuch explains that the idea of playing this out on the animal was that the person should begin contemplating that this isn't a truism only for animals. But if it's a truism uh, for an animal, how much more so is it true for the human being? This then becomes the first most important push for man to reconsider the physical-spiritual balance of his own life and to put it more into a perspective and a healthy balance. This is what the chinuch says. Now listen to the words. What is the chinuch saying? The chinuch isn't saying that the function of animal sacrifice was that we should deny physical existence. What the chinuch is teaching us is that we should comprehend that the legitimacy of physical existence is with its partnership with the spiritual. What is that? That is again the concept of the merging of lama'ala with lamata. Merging that which comes from above, the soul, with that which comes from, from lamata from the bottom, which is the body. So it again is that concept of merging together body with soul. <clears throat> Let's do one more quickly, and then I'll open up for some questions. Antigonus is Socho, kibul sadik. Antignus, who came from soho, received from shimonat sadik the transmission, Who omer, and he used to say, don't be like servants who only serve the master, the reward that they know that they're going to get for the service but serve the master in this case meaning God without the contingency, without the without the condition of knowing that you're getting a reward for it in other words, don't serve God simply because there's a pot of gold awaiting you when you're finished serve God not for the, for the mercenary reasons of, of the benefits and the rewards, but serve God out of love. And even though you serve God out of love, but via Mara Aleichem, but make sure that you also have an awe and a reverence and a fear for God as well. Now, let's explain something here. Let's explain something here. You'll, you'll see in a moment where I'm going, and it's a very, very important thing, and that's why, I couldn't hold myself back from saying it today. Antigonus Hishsarho is not saying that a person should say to himself there is no reward. There is reward. There were those that interpreted Antigonus Ishsachos' words to mean that there is no reward. And there is no retribution in what man does. And they went off, way, way off from what what ...authentic Jewish philosophy is about. The tztukim, the baisusim... ...these were these groups of people. So Antigonus Eszachot never intended that. What in, Antigonus Eszachot was saying... ...was one of two things. Either, don't serve God... Because, of the, ...because you know that you're getting rewards. In other words, I'll serve you because... ...there's there's a reward coming. Don't, in other words, that shouldn't be the reason. Or, don't serve God with the attitude that you deserve a reward for serving God. Because you really should serve God for everything that God has already done for you. And in in a way of showing appreciation for everything that has happened, it is worthy to serve God as an act of appreciation. These were the two concepts. Now, what all of the commentaries say is that if I'm not serving God for rewards, So why am I serving God? I'm serving God out of love. And then he quickly says, but the fear of God should be upon you. What's going on over here? So, the commentaries say a very interesting thing. You know, a lot of people say, I can serve God out of love if I can find his love for me. But it is very difficult for me to serve God out of fear. First of all, the word fear conjures up in our minds all kinds of negative things. Fear, by and large, is a despicable word in any person's vocabulary. It's it's immobilizing, it's debilitating, it robs man of what he truly is, etc., etc. And there is no magic that when we attach the word fear to God, all of a sudden it becomes a great virtue in our minds. We've got problems with it. We struggle with it. And most of us would prefer only thinking of God as loving me and therefore I'll love him. However, Antigonus Sacho is teaching us that really love and fear of God are truly inseparable. And let me explain this. Let me explain what this is all about. If we mean, when we talk about the fear of God, the fear of getting it over the head when we do something wrong, then fear and love have nothing to do with each other. Then I'm I'm fearful of God because I'm practical if I do or do not love God has to do with how much I'm scared of getting it over the head on any particular day so then the two things can be very much contradictory with each other however there is a form of fear that is the result of love and there is a form of fear that, in, that engenders love how? so let's explain let's take the, the easier half first If I have a relationship with an individual that that relationship is very, very deep, a very deep and loving relationship, and it is terribly precious to me, I will be fearful of doing something that can spoil it. In other words, because there is so much love, I don't want to do the things that can hurt the relationship. I don't want to do the things that can hurt the other person because I love the other person. I don't want to do the things that can hurt the relationship because the relationship is such a deep loving one. I don't want to lose it. So there is a yira, there is a fear that comes out of Ahava. And I would say that a person that is never concerned about what happens to a relationship, the relationship isn't worth too much to begin with. So, the fact that a person can exhibit a certain amount of fear in not hurting a relationship reflects the extent of the love that exists in the relationship. So, the yira that flows from love is fine. It's not contradictory. It usually keeps us in shape that we don't take the relationship for granted all right, and that we constantly keep the elements necessary in the relationship going. On the other hand, Yira also brings to Ava. Fear also brings to love, because what the word Yira really means, what the word Yira really means, is to see, to comprehend, to understand. To the extent that we really comprehend and understand God's greatness we have to be overcome with a tremendous degree of gratitude and love to God that He has anything to do with me and that He's involved with me. So to the degree that we can see God, that we can really believe that He's a reality, it's to that degree that love becomes possible. You see, if God is some kind of imagination, some kind of goose pimple in my mind, you know, that, that blows hot and cold depending upon what happened to me today. So, Ava isn't a reality. But to the degree that, that, that God is this awesome reality, so then there's what to love. The more real God is, the more there is what to love and what to feel. So, Yira also, and the efforts that we put in, in respecting who God is, brings us to love, to love as well. A relationship that has no responsibility and no concern doesn't have the possibility of becoming nurtured with deep love, nurtured and coming to deep love. But if there is a certain amount of seeing, understanding, respecting, being concerned, about where the other person stands. So then what comes out of all of that energy is Ahava. So it's really childish and somewhat immature to run away from all concepts of Yira. The Yira that that flows into love by the effort and the Yira that flows out of love is very important in our relationship with God. And it's the combination of both that really makes a realistic relationship. Okay, I'll keep quiet now and I'll gladly take some questions. Yes?
1: I think I'll start. Uh, you said in the transition uh, of the Torah, it was given to Yeshua, Yeshua came further and so on. Did you stress the point that they were special people. Fine, so it is. Yet, if they are so special, why, when the cipher writes the Torah, he writes only one oath at a time. He doesn't write the whole word. Yeah? It's not just not to make a mistake. He wrote ten others for it before. You didn't bring it out. I'm not trying
0: to. I would like to know why. I'm not I'm not completely familiar with the laws of, of Safras, with the laws of how we write a Sefer Torah. Oh. But from, from, from what I know uh, about the writing of a Sefer Torah, it's perfectly all right to to write as much as you want of a sefetari. You can't write more than two le- one letter at a time. One letter at a time. And what is the
1: purpose of
0: that? The the reason for that the reason for that is that the, there's a concept of creating a, a sequence in writing. In other words in other words, you write in other words, you're creating you're creating words. And this, there's, uh, in other words, the system that we were taught by how we write the words is that we don't write partial letters and then complete it, but that we create the words letter by letter. In other words, it's a, it's a system the of writing. for
1: that is, so we should not say that we write the Torah, we just copy it. Wouldn't that be the reason?
0: I'm 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 not familiar with that. I'm not familiar with that. Yeah, Bernie. The definitions you gave right at the end about Yira and Nava. Yes. Um, are those the only two definitions of fear, or is there an actual fear? You said it's sort of... In other words, one is the you're afraid of losing the relationship, and one is you you realize God's awesome power. Right? Those were the two definitions. Is that the definition of Yira? Yes yes the Sefer HaYosher LeRabbeinu Tam that, that the, according to most commentaries is, is what the Rabbeinu Tam wrote he wrote I have it in my briefcase um, he, he discusses the relationship of Yera. and Yira and he, sa- and he says that the, the other Yira the Yira of Onesh okay he says Yiras HaOnesh was never the intention of what was meant by the virtue of Yira Okay, never intended. There is a concept that a person believes that there's reward and punishment, and that he knows that for everything that he does, he's accountable. But that that amud, that pillar of the relationship of God, which is which is yira, is not yiras ha'onish. Is not yiras ha'onish. I mean, he has some very derogatory statements to make for the person that believes that the Yira that is considered a virtue in one's relationship with God is Yiras Ha'onesh the fear of punishment that was never the intention to understand the magnitude of my actions and so on and so forth is altogether an important thing for a person to know because he has to know what he can accomplish and what he can destroy by his choices but the virtue of Yira is Yiras the, the the respect and the awe that comes out of the greatness of God Right? Which requires, parenthetically, a lot of knowledge and understanding of God. You know, you don't need knowledge and understanding to know what it feels to get clopped clapped over the head, but the 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 yira, the respect that comes out of the greatness of God, needs knowledge and understanding. And more than that, he says the only fear that really has eternity to it, and that doesn't disappear, so to speak, is the yira that flows out of Ahava. Right. Then he goes on to describe what what he says that there are ten features you can give yourself a test if you truly love God. Right? And he gives uh ten items that are indications of love, you know, by which by which a person can come to to, to love God. Yeah.
1: Do
0: we believe that animals have a, a Yes, we do but obviously not of the, the nature or level that human beings have. According to our Kabbalistic literature, in a certain sense, every living thing has, and even not living things, have a soul. The soul being the spiritual purpose or the spiritual charge for which they exist in the world. But obviously, the kind, the type, the level, the purpose of each neshama is different. But yes, we do believe that in that concept. I, I, as I said before, I don't want to go d- deeply into this whole concept. Okay, I mean, I'm afraid that if I answer your question more, you're going to be left with bigger questions. But if you insist, I'll do it. There's a con- there's, there is a concept in Judaism which is radically different from what we're accustomed to today. And that, and it runs something along the line. And again, this is not a whole answer. It's only part of a much larger answer. So don't, don't take this as the entire thing. There is a concept in Judaism which says that everything in creation was intended in some way to serve God. However, being realistic, right, this is accomplished through many things serving man and aiding man in his service of God. If I could use a Kabbalistic example of this, the Balatanya says that the earth provides a home for the grass to grow, the cow eats the grass, the cow produces milk, the human being drinks the milk and has the strength to serve God. So the Balatanya says in an interesting way man has the ability if he uses the resources of his entire world correctly he has a way of bringing together and unifying all of creation in a service to God. Now, when man does this not the cow, not the blade of grass not the earth feels deprived, used or raped in any way. For in each part and each level of creation functioning in helping man in his service of God, it reaches the fulfillment of its reason for existence. This is why we very often talk about even physical things like a piece of land when it serves the spiritual purpose for which it's created that it is raised in accomplishing that purpose. That's why when Abraham bought... The 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 burial plot that where Adam and his wife Chava was buried for uh, for himself and for for the next two peers Yitzchak and Rivka and Yaakov and Rachel when he was finished with buying the piece of land it says Vayakum stay Ephron that the uh, the field actually had an elevation from. From the purchase because now it would be able to serve the purpose for which it was created so the Jewish view of the resources of the world is that we respect all of the resources of the world because they too have a function in the service of God and when that service and function is is found and accomplished and I know it's going to sound egotistical, man has, has provided a level of fulfillment for that particular part of creation, not only for himself. And therefore, when a person utilizes things as instruments of the service of God, those things themselves are raised towards God and reach a level of fulfillment. Now... How this has to do with animal sacrifice, I will leave to your imagination for the time being. But it, it runs along that course. See, the mind today goes along the course. Hey, listen, you have a life, and, and, and we'll, we'll respect it. But the same way we respect human life, we respect as legitimate existence in and of itself every other form of life as well. That's not totally correct, while it is coming from a place that has a a lot of truth when we talk about the most meaningful life of an animal is to be an animal and to be left alone to be an animal that's not true from a Jewish perspective from a Jewish perspective the life of an animal is precious for the purpose for which it was created and ultimately everything is created to, to move man toward, closer towards God All right, we'll have to stop here